So we are in this series that we're calling Ignite, and we are uh, thinking about the subject of revival. And revival is a uh, kind of very Christian type word, is a very churchy word. But what revival refers to is a, a season uh, of time where God seems to be working in a, a, a more intense, more recognizable, more obvious way than normal. Okay, we believe that the from what the Bible teaches us, that God's at work all the time, whether we see it or not. But there are certain seasons that have happened down through history where it's, it's almost like, I read one book and that the person said, it's, it's like the normal operations of the gospel are continuing. That is, the Bible's being preached, people are hearing about Jesus, people are trusting in Jesus, and you know, lives are being changed and so on. All the normal stuff's happening, but it's as if God has pressed fast forward. And it's just happening with an intensity. And so we're thinking about revival, and we're going to go back into the book we're looking in, and I'll I'll explain again briefly why we're doing that, because it's not an obvious one. But last week I asked the question, like, why does it matter? Why should we care? And and I said last week, and I'll just repeat it again, you might be sat here thinking, I'm I'm not even a follower of Jesus. I'm just, you know, here with a friend or whatever. And, And so why would I care about God doing something among his people that's, you know, supposedly exciting. Like, what difference is that going to make? And so last week I pointed out that if you look through history and you see the times where revival has taken place, genuine revival, then often what you find in the aftermath of it is massive impact in society in terms of race relations, in terms of education, in terms of health care, and so on. There is a, a spillover effect for society when the church gets healthy, when God is at work among his people. But then let me ask another question that's still the same question. Why should I care? Not so much from the perspective of being maybe an outsider who's sort of like, I'm not sure if I believe all this stuff. But for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we've trusted him, we've become part of God's family. Why should we care? Like why do we really? Why would we want God to be working in a really obvious, tangible, definite way, so that you can totally sense that God is at work? Is that really something that we should want as Christians? That might seem like a strange question, but I'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes. So we're in the book of Two Chronicles. I didn't make that a quiz or a guess thing or anything like that. I just told you last week, 2 Chronicles. So we're going to 2 Chronicles. And it seems a bit obscure because it's right in the middle of our Old Testament. If you've got one of the church Bibles, we're going to be on page 363. And it seems really obscure to us because it's kind of parked right in the middle there. But the way that the Jews had the Old Testament organized, so the way that Jesus growing up as a child would have read through the Old Testament, Chronicles came last. It was the final book. And so what Chronicles does is it kind of uh, comes at the end of the Old Testament when Israel had come back to the land and they'd built a temple and it wasn't very impressive and and it was a bit of a letdown really. They were like, is this it? Is this what God promised? Is this what we've been looking forward to? And the writer of Chronicles wrote in such a way that he was trying to excite and ignite and encourage the followers or the believers in God to really believe in him, to really trust him and to to really be responsive to him. And what he did was he went back to the very beginning, right back to Adam, and then he comes forward through the Old Testament and surveys the whole story, focusing especially on the uh, period of David and Solomon, kind of the golden age 
of Israel's history, and then uh, the line of David after Solomon. And so you think, well, hang on a minute. David and Solomon, they're not that great, were they? Well, when you read Chronicles, it seems like they were. Because what he does, the writer, is he kind of picks the good stuff because he's trying to get the people he's writing to to respond. He's trying to get them kind of ignited with a responsiveness to God. And so last week we started into two Chronicles, which begins, the original book of Chronicles was one book, but it's been divided in two for scroll length issues, okay? And so two Chronicles starts after David is, is, uh, has died, and you come forward uh, to uh, the life of Solomon, his son. And two Chronicles, we started it last week, looked at the first few chapters, and basically Solomon's building the temple. That's kind of the story But we thought about four things last week, four things that that are clear in the text about God. We we thought about the fact that God wants a a back and forth relationship with his people. He wants there to be that kind of reciprocation where he does things, but he wants them to respond and and he's ready to answer their prayers and so on. And so God wants this back and forth with his people. We thought about the fact that the temple was not just some kind of building for religious ritual, but it, it spoke of the, the fact that God wants to be in the midst of his people. He doesn't stay off at a distance. He wants to have his kind of presence in a special way right there at the heart of the community of his people. We saw in uh, chapter 6 that God gave David, Solomon's father, credit for wanting to build the temple, which is a very relational thing, to, to know somebody's heart and to appreciate what they would do if they could do for you. And so we thought about that last week. And then we came to the prayer where the, the, the temple's been built and they've done this incredible amount of sacrificing. We didn't read it, but I'll tell you what it says in chapter 5. It was beyond number. They couldn't number the animals that were sacrificed, which sounds horrific to us, but it was a big deal. And they had this huge gathering of all people, like all of the nation represented there. So it was a massive, massive crowd. And Solomon had this kind of raised platform. And as the king, he stood on this platform and then he fell to his knees and he prayed a prayer to God. And that prayer basically is seven hypothetical situations. One of them was if a foreigner prays, God, hear that person and and, and respond to them. That's great because we're all foreigners from Israel's perspective. But out of those seven hypotheticals, at least five of them imply when your people mess up, when they sin, when they stray, when they make crazy decisions, when they do silly things, when they just totally make a mess of their lives and they cry out to you, would you hear and respond and restore your people? So Solomon knew human nature. Chronicles doesn't tell us, but we know from the other book, Kings, that Solomon really messed up himself. He started strong, and we're reading the good stuff here, but Solomon himself, his heart went off after other uh, things, other wives representing other gods, and he drifted from God. And so he himself is a sad story, but the writer to the Chronicles wants us to see the good stuff here. He wants us to, to see that when Solomon's being responsive to God, God's being responsive to Solomon. And so Solomon prays this prayer. And he comes to God in front of the whole nation. Let's look at the end of the prayer, right at the end of chapter 6. It's at the top right of page 363, 
verse 41, Solomon says, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let, the, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. Remember your steadfast love. That's a great end to a prayer. He wants God to be God to the people. And then we come to chapter 7, verse 1, which begins by saying, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer. In that moment, I don't know what you expect. When you come to the end of a prayer and you say, amen, you're probably not expecting this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. Can you imagine what that must have been like? If you can kind of turn on your imaginer, I don't know if you've used it recently, but get your imaginer going and, and think what that must have been like to be in that crowd. There's this temple that's been built. That's impressive. The king is there praying. That's impressive. The crowd, that was impressive. But then for the fire to drop from heaven and consume a number of animals that could not be numbered. Just imagine the heat that that they would have felt on their faces, the smell, the the noise of that moment. I mean, just overpowering every sense absolutely uh, to the max. Thank you. Um, Just just an incredible moment of, of, of kind of sensory stimulation for the people. It must have been astonishing. I'm sure that the people who were there would have, for the rest of their lives, said, I was there. Right? Whenever you talk to someone, you know, it's like, oh, if you were there, well, I was there. But if they were there, they would have talked about it because it would have left them a mark in their hearts that was just incredible. What would you say if you were there? If, if you felt the, the heat, if you smelled the smell, if you heard the noise, I imagine it's quite noisy burning that many uh, animals. If, if you had that vision that right in your eyes, seeing the glory of the Lord, whatever that was, so that the people, the priests, couldn't enter into the temple. If you saw that and you fell flat on your face because you were so clearly in the presence of God, I'm sure that maybe like me, you would say something like, Our God is an awesome God. Wow, God, you're impressive. But that's not what they said. Look at what they said at the end of verse 3. So they fell on their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, if you, if you pause to think about that, that's kind of an unlikely thing to say, isn't it? God, you're powerful. God, you're awesome. Wow, I can't believe I'm here. Am I still alive? You, you know, like it's the ultimate 
demonstration of something that's overwhelming and their response is he's good and his steadfast love endures forever. Now these are great Old Testament themes. In fact, so far in, in 2 Chronicles, we've had these, these words used multiple times. Back in chapter 1, when the Lord came and appeared to Solomon and Solomon was asked, what do you want? Solomon's response was, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father. When you come down into chapter 5 and you come to the end of the, uh, the, kind of the initial offerings that they made, uh, they were saying or singing, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That's far left of the page you're looking at. You go down into Solomon's prayer and he begins his prayer by saying uh, in verse 14 of chapter 6, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. You come down to the end of his prayer, chapter 6, verse 42. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. And now when the presence of God comes and the temple is filled with glory and everybody's blown away by it, their response is he's good and his steadfast love endures forever. I ask the question, as a Christian... If, if you would call yourself a Christian, you've got a relationship with Jesus, you, you know, God's your father. And so why would it even be a question to ask, do I want to experience revival? Or to put it another way, do I want to experience the presence of God? The reason I raise that is because a lot of Christians actually don't seem to want it. It's almost like we're, we're thankful that God sent his son. He went to the cross, died in our place, you know, dealt with our sin. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that when we die, we get to go to heaven. We're looking forward to that. But in the meantime, we kind of sometimes keep God at arm's length, don't we? It's, it's like if, if God gets too close, well, you know, who knows what's going to happen? If God gets close and starts kind of getting involved in my life, then, well, you know, maybe I'm going to have to give up that, you know, relationship or that, that thing or, or there's, there's this problem in my life that I don't really want to face. And maybe if God kind of showed up, I'd have to face it. And before we know it, we can, I'm sure you, you can relate to this. Many of us kind of keep God at arm's length. Okay, Lord, I'll go to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll pray and I'll, I'll maybe even give to the offering, but I'll, I'll just, just do whatever I can to keep you back. Don't get too close. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons for that is because we're convinced that if God came close, we would be blown away with his power, but we don't realize how strong his love is. We don't realize maybe that, that for God to step in and be right there at work in our lives is the most incredible privilege because it just seems kind of scary. Like it's going to mess with us. He's going, to, he's going to poke at things in our lives. He's going to try and sort things that we don't really want sorting. And somehow his presence is going to be a negative. And yet for those people in 2 Chronicles, when the presence of God was tangibly right there, the, the words on their lips were, he's good. His steadfast love endures forever. It was, it, somehow they, they sensed that. They were aware of that. You know, the, there's another place in the Bible where it says that in your presence, there is fullness of joy. It doesn't say in your presence, there is extreme awkwardness. 
Or in your presence there is uncomfortable having to deal with things I don't want to face. No, it says in your presence there is fullness of joy. It reminds me of another incident. I'll just give one more Bible incident and then I'll, I'll kind of bring it back to us. But you remember maybe if you've read through the early books of the Bible or maybe you've heard the story uh, at some point. When the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they came to Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain and he brought down the Ten Commandments and, and you know, the, the whole thing was kind of happening like God had rescued the people and now they were his people and you think, oh, this is going well. And then Moses is up on the mountain and the people say, oh, he's been gone a long time. Let's make another God. And so they put all their gold together and they make this calf out of gold, a young virile bull calf. So it's all kind of, ooh, kind of sexualized power and so on. And they, they just fall down and worship this calf. And they're like going all nuts, literally crazy. And, and Moses is up on the mountain and God's response to what the people have done or are doing is completely what you'd expect for a husband whose wife or bride is off with some other lover on the honeymoon, effectively. God is angry. He's angry that they're, that they're turning on him, that they're being unfaithful to after all he's done for them. And so Moses is up on the mountain talking with God. It's a fascinating few chapters, Exodus 32, 33, 34. And God is angry and Moses is saying, Lord, you've, you, you need to remember your promise and your reputation. And there's this back and forth between them. And there's this point where Moses says to God, Lord, show me your glory. And every time I read that line, I think, no, don't ask for that. He's angry. I mean, you're on the mountain. There's thunder. There's lightning. It's like the most impressive display of power. And Moses, in the moment when he's talking with God, who is absolutely livid about what's going on, Moses says, show me your glory. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. show me the exit. Like, I don't want to be here. Lord, get me out of here. I'm scared of you. That's what I'd be thinking. But Moses says, show me your glory. And you'll have to look in the passage to, to see why he had confidence. I think there's a clue in there. But, but I want you to notice one thing, or maybe go and check it out later. I'll point one thing out to you. Maybe you remember how God said to Moses, well, here's the thing. You cannot see my face and live. This is God the Father who's talking to you. No one's ever seen God and, and live. But what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover your face and I'll pass before you and then you can see kind of the trail of my glory. Do you remember that kind of weird story? But the thing he says first, which we so easily miss, when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, God's response is, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Whew. Is it possible that the God of the Bible, the God who reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus, is a God whose presence, to be in his presence, is A, terrifying, because he is the God who created everything. So you notice people come into the presence of God, they're flat on their face, but... Is it possible that that radiance, that, that power, that, that kind of energy that's there is actually the radiance of his goodness? That it's overpowering and overwhelming and like nothing we've ever experienced in this world. And if we were to experience it, the cry of our hearts and the, the words on our lips would be, he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. If that's true, 
And it seems to be. It's true for Moses. It's true for these people here. It's, if it's true that, that to be in the presence of God is actually an incredibly positive privilege, then surely we should want it. Surely we should long for it. So this, this passage here describing this moment is an intense moment. Let me just read the next couple of verses just to, just to kind of back up what we're saying here. Verse 4, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen. That's a number, isn't it? And 120,000 sheep. Which is interesting because in chapter 5, the previous list of animals was beyond numbers. So it, we're talking bigger than these. Right? This is incredible numbers. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their post. The Levites also with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood and, and Solomon consecrated this area and, and so on. This is an incredible kind of moment of worship. I say moment, it went on for 15 days. It was the autumn feast of tabernacles plus, and they kind of did this whole extended worship response to God's presence being there, which was a response to the prayer that Solomon had prayed, which was a response, you, you get the point? There's a back and forth between God and his people. And God longs to come and be amongst his people. I just want us to notice one more thing in this chapter before we, we kind of pull it all together. Because you, you drop down to verse 11. And it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night. Just like in chapter 1, again, the Lord appeared to Solomon. By the way, I've, I've mentioned Exodus. I've got to clarify Moses was told no one can see God. I think in, in that case, what's going on is God the Father does not make himself visible to humanity. But when the Lord appears, and it, he appears all the way through the Old Testament, when the Lord appears to his people, I think this is God the Son. Before he's been born in Bethlehem, he's taking on a human form in order to meet and encounter Humans, You see, Adam walked with the Lord, and uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham, and so on. There's lots and lots of references. I, I, I take that to be God the Son, and if you want to know why, we can talk after, and I can explain it. But, but here's the interesting thing, because here in, in chapter 7, verse 11, Solomon sees the Lord. And, and it seems to me that if I saw the Lord, like Solomon saw the Lord, I would then ideally have a photograph, right? That would be the, my, my reach for my phone, right? Secondly, in, in the absence of a phone, I would try to remember all the details about what he looked like, wouldn't you? Why is it that all the way through the Old Testament, the Lord appeared, the Lord appeared, the Lord appeared, and they never, apart from in Daniel, they never seem to write a description, He's so tall and, you know, he's got a beard or he's not got a beard. That'd be a surprise, wouldn't it? You know, there's, he's, he's hair color or muscly, not muscly, tall, thick. I don't know. Like, what? We're never told the physical description of the Lord. What are we given instead? 
What we're given instead is actually something even more valuable. We're given a record of what he says. That's really important because if we had Solomon's description of the Lord, we would be here trying to conjure up an image of what the Lord looks like. But instead, what we have is a record of what God said. And what that means for us is that we've got something that that doesn't just last one lifetime. For the people that were there when the fire fell and the glory filled the temple, I can imagine them talking about that day for years. But when they died, the next generation hadn't seen that. But the next generation had this record. And so as amazing as the start of chapter 7 is, actually what has happened down through two and a half thousand years is that the church of God's people have been stirred by one verse in this paragraph. Why? Because it's the recorded word of the Lord. So let me read it to you. God said, I have heard your prayer. How cool is that? I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, Solomon, and he goes on to tell Solomon to kind of be faithful. Follow me faithfully. He didn't, uh, and that's another story. He goes on to talk about the nation again, saying, you know, if, if they are unfaithful, there are going to be consequences. And so in this whole section here, this recorded statement of what the Lord said to Solomon, it, it's, it's kind of, on the one hand, quite overwhelmingly full of warning. And the warning is, is, is clear. It's a warning to the people of Israel, this nation that God had brought out of Egypt, and he'd brought into relationship with himself and he'd set them up and he'd said look if you're faithful to me then you'll be blessed if you're unfaithful then there's going to be consequences and if you keep being unfaithful then you'll be taken out of the land but ultimately I'll bring you back and we we might read that and go well good thing we're not Israel right I mean it'd be awkward if we were Israel because we could be just as unfaithful as they can and there'd be consequences and so on but when you come to the New Testament we have the same God who talks to his people. For instance, in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about God disciplines those he loves. Like a good father will discipline the son that he loves. God disciplines us. And so we cannot say, well, warnings don't apply to us because the reality is if we shake our fists at heaven and we keep God at arm's length and we go our own way and we try to do things our version instead of God's version of right, then there'll be consequences. Like it says somewhere, God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. If we sin, there are consequences. But, but recognize that the same God who disciplines us because he loves us wants to draw us to himself. Which is why verse 14 is right in the midst of that paragraph. If my people, the most famous verse in all of the, the, the scroll of Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, which is not just Israel, that's also us, right? 
Christians, little Christs, if we called by God's name, if we're his people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will, what does it say? I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The land bit, I think, is very Israel-specific. Let's not get carried away with dreams about what God's going to do in Britain or in America or wherever else. But let's just take it among God's people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, instead of sticking out our chest and saying, it doesn't matter what God wants me to do, I'm going to go my own way. Instead of that, we say, oh, what am I thinking? pray and seek God's face say Lord I want to know you I want to come into your presence I want to be close to you I want to, I want to be responsive to you I want to have the relationship with you that you so obviously want to have with me if we will pray and seek his face and turn from whatever wicked ways have crept into our lives then God says I will hear and I will forgive and I will heal that's an amazing verse isn't it you see we Last chapter, we had Solomon praying on this momentous occasion and basically saying, we're going to mess up, Lord, when we do, and we cry out to you, would you listen and would you restore? Now God himself is saying it. God knows us. You know, we beat around the bush and pretend that we've got our you know, best face on and all's going well. God looks at us and he knows the mess. He knows the, the other things. He knows the baggage. He knows the, the, the things that are wrong on the inside and the things that we do on the outside, the things that we say that we shouldn't or don't that we should. He knows the thoughts that go through our minds. God looks at us and he's not foolish. He doesn't look at us and go, oh, good enough. He looks and he sees the mess that we are. And what does he say? He says, I'm ready to forgive. Just turn back to me. Just humble yourself. Just pray. Seek my face. Instead of going your own way and puffing out your chest and, and being some kind of little mini God that's in charge of your own little mini kingdom, stop it and come back to me because I'm ready to forgive. I'm longing to have you in my presence. I'm longing for there to be a closeness between us. I think it's really important that we feel the force of that. That was, in a sense, the force of the fire and the glory because the people were just saying, wow, he's good, his steadfast love endures forever. But then God gave a record of his word that could go down from generation to generation as an ongoing invitation. And so here we sit as a group of people that maybe a, a good number of us would say, yeah, I'm happy to be called by his name. I'm, I'm, I'm one of his people. We know the reality of our lives, don't we? We know that it, it's not sinful people out there and saints in here, right? We know that we're not perfect. We know that we struggle. We know that there's things in our lives where we've kind of pushed God to arm's length. And we've said, I'm just not going to face that issue. I'm just going to carry on. If God will just you know, continue to provide food and, you know, so I can pay the bills, and if church can go okay, that's fine, I'll just live with that until heaven and then, you know, hopefully everything can sort itself out at that point because who can complain in heaven? And, and, and God's like, wait a minute. I want something more than that. I want a closeness with my people. 
there's this bit in Revelation, one of the letters to the, the church. We've jumped around a bit today, I apologize. But, but there's this bit where maybe you've heard the verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And we sometimes use that evangelistically, like God's knocking on the door of your heart. And if you just open the door, he'll come in. That's true, but that's not what it's actually saying. What it's actually saying is that Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. And saying, can I come in? I want to be close. And bizarrely, the local church can sometimes shut the door on Jesus. And say, well, just leave us alone. We've, we've got this. We're handling this. Jesus wants to sit down and eat with us. He wants to be that close to us. I suppose one of the dangers as we do a series on revival is that it can stir within us a kind of a longing for something corporately that may or may not happen. Do you know what I mean by that? Like maybe you've come across Christians who have lived their entire life longing for a season of revival. And they'll go on and on about the ones they've heard about. Oh, the 1904, you know, Welsh revival. Yeah, 1904, 2018, that's a long time. The 1950-whatever in Canada, ooh, you know. And I, and I understand why, why people long for it, but, but here's my fear, my concern. And maybe the reason that often we don't talk about revival is because there's no guarantee, there's no guarantee that God's going to press fast forward. There's no guarantee that there's going to be a tangible sense of God's presence amongst his people that's going to just lead to massive, you know, kind of conviction of sin and transformation. There's no guarantee of that. And the absence of that does not mean that we don't have the, the reality of a relationship with God. And so, yes, corporately, let's, let's pray for it. Let's ask God for it. Let's say, Lord, we want to see more people coming to know you. We want to see every one of us, the people that we sit beside at church. We want to see uh, a transformation and a leaning into you. We want to have a tangible sense of your presence. Sometimes we get a little moment when the singing is like really good. But Lord, we want that. We want that kind of big scale. But what I don't want us to do as a church is say, oh, 1904, you know, or in the 1800s. No, I don't want us to live as if what's going on week by week, day by day is somehow a letdown because it isn't living up to something we read about in 18th century America. One of the, the men that's been the biggest influence on me, kind of a sort of a mentor figure, George Verwer. A lot of you know him. He spoke here a couple of years ago at Trinity. George Verwer says something super, super helpful on this, and I want to share it with you. George said there's, there's all these Christians who live their whole lives longing for revival and permanently disappointed because they don't experience it. He says, what they need to realize, what we all need to realize is that personal revival is our daily privilege in Jesus. Just think about that, personal revival. Whether it, whether it happens corporately or not, we don't know, let's, let's pray for it. But every single day, if you trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you're in a relationship with him, every single day, 714 applies. If my people who are called by my name, that's me, Lord, will humble themselves. Oh, I need to do that again, Lord. And pray and seek my face and turn from every wicked way. Actually, that's a daily privilege. And God hears and God forgives and God heals and God gets close. He's knocking on the door, and if anyone opens the door, he'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to be close to us personally. 
And I think it's kind of cool. As you look at chapter 7, you've got these two aspects here. You've got the kind of experience of the first few verses that just kind of must have hit every sense. And then you've got the written word of what God said in the second part of the chapter. You've got the the kind of subjective, uh, heart-stirring, kind of fluttering stomach kind of moment, but you've also got the written record of what God promises. What do we have? We live in a time that is after Pentecost, after the day when the fire fell not on the temple, but onto each individual that was a follower of Jesus. Each individual that was part of God's community, God's presence dwells within us. And that is something that has a subjective reality to it. That's why it says that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And so there should be moments, not constant, not living on cloud nine, but there should be moments where we're stirred and we're moved, where we're singing and we just go, oh, I love you, Lord. There should be moments of of profound subjective delight of being, uh, sensing as you read God's word, as you're singing or praying or whatever, just feel, I'm in the presence of God. Chatting with a friend yesterday, was talking about being with a relative who was right at the end. And he prayed and he said the, the sense of God's presence was just incredible. As individuals, can't guarantee that in every moment but it's there for us and there's also the objective the truth of God's word whether you feel it or not it's there for us every single day we're post Pentecost the spirit of God lives within everyone who belongs to Jesus and the word of God is in our language and in our hands that's all we need for revival personally I want to encourage us as a church. Let's long for things, for God to work corporately amongst all of us. Let's long for him to do big stuff in in our nation. But let's make sure that we don't spend our lives longing for that while holding him at arm's length on an individual basis. Instead, let's invite him to come as close as he wants and enjoy being in his presence every day as we humble ourselves, as we pray, as we seek his face, as we turn from any wickedness in our lives because Jesus longs to be close to his people and personal revival is our daily privilege as God's people